Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. This week, we wanted to bring on a very special guest because it seems like one of the big themes going into this weekend is SEC coaches on the hot seat, and in particular, Les Miles and Gus Malzahn uh, facing each other in the LSU-Auburn game, both very much on the hot seat. Well, who better to bring on but Paul Feinbaum, the voice of the SEC, if you will, and a guy who, you know, he's on the SEC network now, but in the old days, I believe the slogan on his nationally syndicated radio show was where legends are made and coaches get fired. So we're very pleased to be joined by Paul. All right, Paul. So this is a little bit of pro wrestling parlance, but is this matchup between LSU and Auburn, given all of the heat on both coaches, kind of a loser leaves town matchup? Yes. I mean, it is a wrestling matchup. And I mean, I think Malzahn Bruce is getting all the attention, but you know, what happens if, if, if Les Miles loses? I mean, we went through a week in the aftermath of, of Wisconsin where that was the, the number one topic in college football. And it's going to come right back up because, uh, I mean, this, you know, it, you know, should he lose to Wisconsin and Auburn? I mean, you look at the schedule and, I mean, that's not even close to, to the meaty games. I mean, when you consider Wisconsin may be alive right now, but they won't be after the next five or six weeks with, with the Big Ten schedule. And, and Auburn is uh, the dregs of the SEC West, at least in terms of projection. So, I I I I don't. I mean, I, I think it's probably worse for Malzahn, but le, for Les to have two losses and to be eliminated from the college football playoff, so to speak, before October w- would be uh, would be close to a death knell for him. Paul, I want to ask you about Auburn and Malzahn because there's this perception, and the Auburn fans tell me that it's not true that they run off coaches there. Um, whether it was Tuberville who went undefeated. Uh, did not leave on his own volition, obviously. Um, Gene Chizik won a national title. Now we're talking about possibly firing a guy who was in the national title game three years ago. Um, is it as simple as the narrative out there that, you know, if they have another bad season, if this, certainly if they finish last in the West, he's gone? Or in this case, uh, would they try to make it work? Uh, my sense is if, it, if it's desperate there, they won't try to make it work. And, you know, for you, for you people interested in, our, in an Auburn history lesson, I'm, I'll, 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 all three of you out there, <laughs> Auburn, uh, Auburn since 1975 has fired every coach. Uh, I mean, I don't know if there's a school out there that, I mean, usually someone leaves or, or retires on his own, but, but Auburn has had a run uh, of Doug Barfield. Pat Dye was fired. Terry Bowden. You know, it was made to look like a retirement. Uh, his successor, uh, Terry Bowden, was fired mid-season in, in 98. Uh, Tuberville was fired, and, and obviously uh, Chizik, and Chiz- Chizik was gone as well, uh, just two years removed from winning the title. So they, they, they know how to fire coaches down there about as well as any school in America. And Jay Jacobs, even though he always gives these guys extensions, uh, has been shown, has been known to, to, to not hold back. I mean, he... He let go of Chizik, and I think that was probably the, the one that you didn't really think would happen. As bad as the season was in losing to Alabama uh, 49 to nothing, uh, two years removed from a title, he, he pulled the plug. And uh, so I, I don't think uh, he would stand if, if, this, if this record just completely bombs out. And, I mean, I know most people thought Auburn could win seven or eight games, 
But, you know, with, with Arkansas at home coming up and, and road games at Mississippi State, Ole Miss, Georgia, and Alabama, I, I don't know where you find the wins if you can't beat LSU at home. You know, going into the year, I thought he was on the hottest seat because I thought they were going to start out one and three with they've already lost two of the games. Now they got LSU and those are all home games, which is bad for two reasons. One, because everyone is physically there to see it. And two, that means you got all the road games on the second half of the schedule. And I think it's hard when you get such a bad start and everybody's talking about hot seat, especially down there. It can go south in a hurry. Um Saying that, um, our old friend Rick Neuheisel made an interesting comment, I believe it was today on his XM radio show, where he predicted that Art Bryles, who left, who was forced out at Baylor, obviously in the wake of a sexual assault scandal, would be the next coach at Auburn. Um, I was going to ask you about Bobby Petrino before this, because he still has the $10 million uh, clause in his contract that if he leaves for another job, he has to go. And obviously Petrino is a hot name. Uh could you see them, Auburn, signing off on on hiring Art Bryles at this winter when they may not know if there's more stuff coming from the Baylor cases? Bruce, I don't think there's a chance they would hire Art Bryles. And, and listen, I, I, we all know and like Rick, and he may have a source that I don't know about. But I will tell you this story. Uh, in 2012 in November, uh, you guys know Russ Campbell, who represents a number of coaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a friend of mine in Birmingham. He said, would you uh, consider meeting with Bobby Petrino? Uh, Petrino was, had just been fired from Arkansas a couple of months earlier. And I went down to Russ's office and Petrino and I spent about an hour and a half uh, just talking. And you know, he was coyly schmoozing me, trying to get some good publicity. He also knew that I happened to be friends with Bobby Louder, the former uh, head of the Auburn Board of Trustees and one of the most powerful people, I think, in college football history in terms of boosters. And, um, I, uh, you know, I mean, I, I enjoyed talking to him and, you know, said a couple of nice things, but, uh, louder, uh, louder wanted him to be the next coach. And don't forget in 2003, louder pretty much hired him to replace Tommy Trevorville in that famous jet gate incident. The problem was the president, uh, Jay Goosh, who, who was stepping down here in a couple of months, would not give him an interview. They talked to the committee, talked to him for about 10 minutes by phone and would not invite him to come to campus. So that was four years ago. They wouldn't get anywhere near Bobby Petrino. I, I think uh, I've made a pretty compelling case. They, they would get nowhere close to Art Bryles. Right. And I think that that's, I don't know. People continue to hold on to this belief that he's going to just resurface immediately. And I just I do you think anybody would before. anybody in the SEC would touch him this offseason? I really don't. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know if that's something that goes to the commissioner or not. But I think we all know Greg Sankey and, and I have a hard time believing Greg Sankey would want uh, this is just an opinion. Uh, would, 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 would sign off on that. Now I don't know whether he would, he would veto it either, but I, I do know under slide, uh, uh, courtesy calls were 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 offered, uh, and he certainly was known to give his opinion. In fact, I, I know that Lane Kiffin uh, was taken to, to visit Commissioner Slide by Bill Battle before before Bill would sign off on hiring him. Hmm. Paul, you're dropping all of these un, previously unknown nuggets on here. We appreciate it. Well, I'm trying to trying to trying to help Jamie Horowitz and Fox out a little bit. <laughs> We appreciate that. We need all the help we can get, Paul. We appreciate it. 
<laughs> anything I can do. So there's a lot of coaches in the conference that seem like they're coaching for their jobs right now, whether it's Mark Stoops, Derek Mason, a guy who doesn't necessarily, you know, is not necessarily on the chopping block, but I want to ask about is Bush Jones. How much pressure is he under to end this Florida streak? I think it's pretty, pretty large, Stuart. And, you know, I, I really, you know, you hate to try to anticipate Sunday morning in Knoxville, but I cannot imagine Sunday morning without a win over Florida. I, I, I just don't know where he goes to find credibility because he's, you know, we've all heard his cliches and, you know, brick by brick and building the season off of last year, the 25 points, which decided those games. And I mean, the only good news for him would be he, you know, he has Georgia the week after and A&M and, and Alabama. And then if he could, if he won those three after the loss of Florida, it would probably it wouldn't look as large, but uh, I mean, based on what we're seeing right now, uh, if this team can't beat Florida, uh, I don't like them in too many of the other games as well. Paul, let me ask you this because we've talked, Stu and I have talked about this a little bit, and I feel like this conversation is coming more and more about, you know, it was for a long time, it felt like that the SEC was by far the best division in football. Now the Big Ten East looks good, and you look at the ACC. Atlantic with Louisville, Clemson, and, and Florida State, it looks pretty formal, at least at the top. Um, has Alabama's dominance just kind of broken the will of like the rest of the SEC West? It feels like they, while they've gotten better, it feels like almost everybody else in there, with the possible exception of Arkansas, um, has kind of lost momentum. I mean, these things do have a, a trickle-down effect. Um, I, I don't know yet where where this is going. I mean, I, th- I think the bottom of the of the SEC West is pretty weak. Uh, and I'll leave it. I, don't, I mean, I want to get into the East because uh, you know, coaches all scrambling all over there. But you know, I'm pretty underwhelmed by Mississippi State and Auburn uh, is already uh, in, in the in the potion here. And and then you know what happens Saturday? Uh, I mean, to me the that the winner of the A and M Arkansas game, you know, can make a stand for a while, but the loser is, will be will be scrambling as well. And and again, we we can't, you know, it's impossible to figure LSU out. So yeah, I mean, I think I, I think that's a fair statement today. And I, I always hate to, you know, at this point in time, that sounds like a political debate or a politician, but it it, it doesn't look like the league is is getting stronger. And and when you think about I think it's next week, Florida and Tennessee, excuse me, LSU at Florida. You have two ex-Purdue quarterbacks probably <laughs> starting that game. I mean, we talked about it in Birmingham at the media days, but the, the quarterback play in this league is, is just downright awful. If Chad Kelly is your best quarterback, and, and at his best, he is superb, and at his worst, uh, he manages to cost his team games. Uh, I don't know where you go next. Now, we've talked a lot about the teams that are struggling, so let's ask you about Alabama. Um, you have your you have the pulse of the Alabama fan base more than anybody. Are they concerned at all after the scare Ole Miss gave them, or at this point they're so used to Ole Miss giving them trouble that it's just part of the deal? Yeah, I mean, it was like having severe chest pains versus a heart attack. That game was... <laughs> Was was terrifying, and uh, once they got a clean bill of health, meaning a five-point win, I think most Alabama fans are moving on. 
I mean, you you can argue any way you want, and uh, I still feel I feel like that was a positive for Alabama, just uh, the fact that they were able to get out of there, and they have a couple of weeks off, so to speak, with uh, Kent State and Kentucky. I mean, but but then uh, you know then, then they hit the trail uh, with with you know a road trip to Arkansas and Tennessee back to back and A and M. So they they do have breathing room uh, to to work out some of the deficiencies, but. I, I do believe that the defense is so good at times and can make so many plays uh, that it, it, it can mask some of the, the problems they're having on the offensive line uh, and, and across the board. I mean, I, I do think Hertz is uh, farther along than I, I ever dreamed he would be. So I, I, I do think they are – I mean, could they lose a game? Sure. But I, I can't see them losing more than that. Well, Paul, we appreciate you coming on and giving us all the the scoops about these. I don't know how the SEC network feels about the fact that you came on and, we, and basically, you know, wrote the obit for half the coaches in the SEC. But you know, uh, that's that's the reality of the conference right now. Yeah, I mean, listen, we all, uh, <laughs> you know, I I try to look at things the same way you guys do, as objectively as possible, and. And right now it's pretty tough. I mean, I, I mean, none of these things, I mean, have to happen. Uh, or, I mean, there's no guarantee, but it's hard to imagine. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't, you could find the most positive person. You could, you could get Joel Osteen on the phone right now and he couldn't paint a positive picture of the loser of this LSU Auburn game. <laughs> uh, so you'll be there. Is SEC Nation going to be at that game? Yeah, we'll be there uh, Saturday morning. I, I, I will not. I will, I will not confirm or deny whether I will remain for the game. <laughs> well, you know that worked out. I assume that was planned before the season. That that worked out well. Yeah, we like where we could find the most tension and, <laughs> uh, and anxiety, and, and this is where we decided. And the radio show, the Paul Feinbaum show, can be heard from three to seven Eastern, Monday to Friday, ESPN Radio, uh, ESPN.com, I assume. Yeah, and uh, Channel 81 on Sirius XM as well. And that's how I catch you, usually on the lunch hour here uh, on the West Coast. Paul, (laughs) Paul, we can't thank you enough for coming on. Oh, guys, my pleasure. Hope to do it again. All right, Bruce, it is time for America's favorite segment. And to tell us what segment that is, hit it, Rob Stone. It's the mailbag from a computer. So not literally a bag, but just mail. That's that thing is catching on. I know. I, Rob Stone and I were leaving our our website offices, and we're in the parking garage, and he was getting recognized. I think for for that. Of course, not the soccer, not the college football hosting, but for jingles. Um, all right. If you have emails, you should always send them to theaudiblepod at gmail dot com. First one from Michelle Cardinal in Montreal. I, I think it might be Cardinal. Cardinal. Yeah, probably. Actually, it's a it's a French name. Uh, hello, Stuart and Bruce. If you would rank, if you were ranking all the FCS and FBS teams together, where would North Dakota State be ranked? Are they possibly a top twenty-five team? You know, Stu, I actually wrote about this, and that's up on our website today. Um, not knowing that today we're going to get this question. Today being Wednesday, yes. And uh, you know, I came away. I watched a decent amount of the the second half of that game, and the thing that jumped out at me was. They physically dominated a team that prides itself on being physical. And I thought, you know, wow, to hold Iowa to minus seven yards rushing is quite a statement. You know, we know that they won five national titles in a row, and that's awesome and everything. 
so, you know, I, I talked to a couple of people who were, who were there, Kirk Ferentz being one, the Iowa coach himself, and also Anthony Becht, who's a former NFL player, who was the, uh, the color analyst for, for ESPN2. And it was interesting because Anthony did point out that Iowa was, was missing their two best offensive linemen, guys who were expected back uh, this week. And so, you know what? Their offensive line is really good. They ran it down Iowa's throat. They have some linebackers who are very talented, who are, you know, they just play hard and they really execute. Um, now, it's worth noting that, you know, arguably their, their best linebacker and maybe their best player, the guy who's the leading tackler, he's out for the season after that game. And another thing that Anthony pointed out is, you know, you look, they weren't had overtime games in both their two previous games against good FCS teams. And you wonder, you know, how well would they do against a team that spreads it out a little more and plays a different style? Ferentz didn't want to even go near there when I said, you know, where do you think they should be ranked or if they should be ranked? He goes, look, I don't put a, I don't put any stock in September polls anyway. He goes, but, you know, they really execute really well and they're very well coached. And, you know, my guess is, you know, I think based on what they did, I think they deserve to be a top 25 ranking. Now, do I think that they would beat a lot of those teams? I don't know. They beat Iowa and Iowa. That's good enough for me. Yeah, I th- I said they deserve to be ranked in the top 25 this week because um, I, I think I, I counted up. There were six instances so far where an unranked team beat a team that was ranked. And in Iowa's case, they're ranked um, pretty high up at 13th. And except for Cal, who had already lost a game, and Central Michigan, the rest all debuted in the top 25 the next week. So I think they should have. Are they, you know, over the course of the season, would they be a top 25 team? You know, there is a rating system that does combine FBS and FCS, and that is Jeff Sagarin. And last season, uh, North Dakota State finished 36th in his rankings. And to put that in perspective, they were... Three spots below A&M, two spots below Louisville, one spot below uh, Western Kentucky, ahead of Toledo, Boise State, BYU, Pittsburgh, and Arizona State. Um, This year, so I went on his one this week thinking, oh, they're going to be really high. And actually, to my surprise, they were 54th, one spot behind Cal. Do you have any handle on how he does his ranking system? Um, No. It's proprietary. Nobody's entirely sure. But I do know that the reason FCS teams often finish ahead of FBS teams in this thing is schedule strength and quality of the opponents you've beaten. So um, it's, supposed to, it's, it's supposed to be a predictor. I mean, you're supposed to be able to use his, his formula to say, all we right. We don't know what his formula is. If this team, if North Dakota State played BYU on a neutral field, BYU would be a one-point favorite, that kind of thing. Um, I think they're a top 40 team. You know, I, I don't think – and the 63 scholarship thing, you know, obviously that would take a toll over the course of a full season. But on a one-game basis, you know, I think they're capable of beating um, everybody. I, I, I would favor them against everybody from about 40 on down, and they're certainly capable of beating on a one-game basis – a lot of the teams would be above that. Where do you think they would finish if they were a team that was in the Big Ten West? Everybody loves playing that game, but you know it's not realistic. Do they do they get to um, add twenty two scholarship players before they? Play? No, let's play it right now. Let's play it right now. I, I don't think they would do well. I mean, I think it would be like. You think uh, they would finish higher than Minnesota? 
That would actually be a good barometer. I would say around where That's Minnesota why I asked finishes. You. Yeah. You think? Because you have to we've had some examples of this in the past, you know, as as great as Utah was in the Mountain West, it, when they moved up to the Pac twelve initially, they really struggled. Same with TCU in the Big Twelve. And both of those coaches would tell you that they didn't have the depth at first when they got in. It took a few years to build up the depth. So if North Dakota State actually played in the Big Ten West, that same thing would catch up to them. But I still think they'd finish around where Minnesota does. Above them or, or below them? Not around. Where? Um, above. Okay. What do you Thank think? you, Stu. You like you go you on board? Uh, I am on board. I am on board, yes. Okay, let's zip through the next questions. All right. James from Seoul, South Korea. We are global. How about that? I didn't even know that. Uh, does it say more about the SEC's continuous lack of good quarterback play or Daryl Hazel's awful tenure at Purdue that two former QBs who transfer from Purdue due to a lack of playing time may start against each other in a few weeks? <laughs> Crazy, right? Um, you know, both of those guys did start at times, Appleby and Etling at Purdue, um, but they eventually got beat out. I think it means that he actually had a pretty nice roster of quarterbacks there. He just doesn't have a anything around them yeah you know they it's not like they didn't have anything i mean um i'm trying to remember is it rakim mostert he was one of the fastest guys in the country he's on nfl rosters it's not like they don't have some guys it's just i don't think they have enough of them you know um you know all three of the quarterbacks they had at one point and that includes their starter now david blau are all elite 11 guys they all i think are you know definitely college you know solid college quarterbacks but i again i think it takes more than that to to have a really good program when it's not not to say they were jay cutler you know or whatever and that nfl on really bad teams but you know again i think that's a little bit of a function we've seen we've seen this before where uh there have been guys who've been you know, proven to be pretty successful. And you, know, you look at their college career and they didn't win a lot of, a lot of games. Like, say, Trevor Simeon? That's exactly who I was thinking yeah. of, yes. Purdue, when they hired Daryl Hazel, did something that drives me crazy. This happens a lot in basketball. See Andy Enfield, where a, team, where a program will hire the hot mid-major coach based off a very small sample size. So Hazel, you remember, was under Jim Trestle for a long time. He gets the Kent State job. They go 5-7 and seven the first year. Then they have the greatest year, I think, in Kent State history, 11-3, and Dree uh, Archer running all over people, and so they hire him off that. But at the end of the day, they hired him off two seasons as a head coach in the MAC at 16-10. and 10. He's now 7-31 and 31, uh, overall, 2-22 and 22 in the Big Ten. I just don't think he was cut out for this job. Remind me to tell you, tell you a, gr- a good Dree Archer story after the podcast. I can't believe you're, you're uh, depriving the, re- the listeners of that. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of I don't know. It, it's not a bad Drew Archer story. It's just one that I don't think is re- is ready for our podcast. Um, all right, uh, Chris Monty, Toronto, Ontario. Hi, Bruce and Stewart. True or false? If Rutgers, Notre Dame, and Oklahoma each won all of their remaining games, Rutgers would have the best chance of making the playoff, a better chance than the other two. I know there's no chance of this happening, but fun to think that three games in, Rutgers has a better CFP chance than Notre Dame and Oklahoma. Uh, so basically he's saying that if Rutgers won out, that would require beating Michigan, Michigan State, Ohio State, somebody good in the Big Ten Championship. And even though they've lost to Washington already, that would obviously be a better resume than what Notre Dame and Oklahoma can produce from here. And I think he's right. Yeah, uh, I think he's right. But 
that's so far fetched. I'm sorry. I mean, I think <laughs> that it's just look. I I think you know, Janarian Grant's a terrific player, but I and they have some pretty good guys in the D line. I mean, I'd be. I think it's a stretch to think they go to a bowl game. I think that you're taking us a little too literally. Sorry. I think he just wanted to wanted us to. Okay, thank I you. I don't know that the Notre Dame. Well, if Notre Dame only had one loss instead of two, I don't know that uh, that that would be as obvious. But he, yeah, I mean, Notre Dame has two, and they don't play that great a schedule the rest of the way. Oklahoma has two, and they, you know, theoretically play a decent schedule, but because the Big Twelve performed so badly out of conference, um, no, I mean they're not. Those teams they beat will not be as highly ranked as the teams Rutgers would beat. But you know, end of day, that's just a. That's just a fun way of saying that uh, that Notre Dame and Oklahoma are not very good right now. By the way, that's two questions from Canada, one question from South Korea. I didn't know we had such uh, international appeal. Oh, of course. We're global. Why don't you uh, take it back stateside, though, and read the one from Raleigh, North Carolina? This is from James Cunningham in Raleigh, North Carolina. Stuart and Bruce, I love your podcast. I also me- emailed on this subject before. I know you're probably getting sick of this topic from me. I understand that you guys don't have much respect for the NC State football program. Another shot at them by saying they couldn't beat North Dakota State. Uh, I'm not budging on that one. Sorry, James. <laughs> uh, with the fan base that shows up for every game, will they ever be able to become a solid top 25 program? So James should read the mailbag this week because we've got some NC State comes up in there as well. Somebody pointed out, and I had never thought of this, but with Jacoby Brissett set to start at, start for the uh, – uh, Patriots this weekend. NC State, 11 of the past 16 seasons, has had an NFL starting quarterback. Phillip Rivers for four years, um, Russell Wilson for three, Mike Glennon for two, and now Brissett, who, who started for two. And so the question was kind of along these lines. Why aren't they any good? Do you, they have been pretty good at times. They had one great year under Chuck Amato where they uh, – and I looked it up, actually, in preparation for this. Do you remember? The, I, I don't even remember. I remember they had one good year under him. In 2002, NC State started uh, 9-0, and although against the likes of New Mexico, East Tennessee State, Navy, who I believe that might have been pre-Paul Johnson or first-year Paul Johnson. So they start 9-0, and and then uh, they lose three straight to Georgia Tech, Maryland, and Virginia. But then they beat Florida State. And then in the Gator Bowl, Notre Dame. That was a great season. They had a lot of athletes there, by the way. I mean, they had some good players. They had a bunch of good coaches. Uh, little known fact of mine, uh, at, at one point, the subject of meat market was going to be NC State. Get out of here. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I had a bunch of guys I was tight with on that staff, and it sounded like things were in pretty good shape. And then the big guy next to Chuck Amato, who I knew just a little bit, was like, ah. I don't think so. Okay, so here's a little trivia for you. You know, we, you've brought up many times on here me ranking Kirk Ferentz as one of the worst coaches. Do yeah. You, do you know who the original worst coach was the very first time I ever did this list in 2005? Uh, I'm going to guess Chuck Amato. Yes. Because I considered him such a big underachiever at the time. He had guys like Mario Williams and um, Manny Lawson. I mean, he brought guys in, and then they would go, you know, 500 or worse in the ACC. Uh, to answer our reader's question, you know, it's to me, it's it's similar to UNC. You know, they're in a good part of the country with a lot of recruits. I haven't been to NC State recently to know what their facilities are like. I mean, I, I, their facilities are way better than when Chuck Amato first got there. I remember 
visiting one of the buddies I had on staff who was with him at FSU and went there. And I literally thought I was going to like a, um, you know, it looked like a doctor's office. Yeah, you know what? I was there too, actually. I remember that uh, the one time I visited there. But at that time, they were already building the new, you know, that was the kind of the beginning, actually, of when I started to realize there was a huge facility arms race going on. Uh, they have. I just think they've hired. I don't think they've hired good coaches, and I know Tom O'Brien had a good run at BC, but you know that was not a good tenure he had at NC State. Dave Dorn so far has done nothing to indicate that you know they can beat anybody other than the Wake Forest and the Syracuse's of their conference. So um, I think if you get the right coach in there, I do think he could win. How much you know would more than more than uh, they finished in the top twenty-five twice during those sixteen years I mentioned would. Would it be asking too much for it to be seven or eight times over 16 years? No, there's no reason why they shouldn't be better. You know, I, there's somebody I'm pretty tight with who's worked there and has said, you know, we have a this is a really cool city. There's a ton to offer, uh, you know, to get recruits in. I, there are a lot of recruits in the area. You know, here's the challenge for them. And I can speak on this one specific example because I, I know some of the guys who work there, they have um, some really, you know, good recruiters, but it is a uphill battle. And so last year they were in on Dexter Lawrence, who is a top five national recruit, a big defensive lineman from that part of the country felt really good. Like they had really good relationships with him. Everything thought the world of the kid, but then ultimately, you know, he picks the Clemson hat. And I think Clemson, you know, you have a lot of schools that go in there and, and do well. And I think that makes it a challenge. I mean, the way Clemson is going right now, I mean, they're basically right in your backyard, too. And, you know, it's it's different. I think it's harder now than it was when Chuck Amato was there because of that, because of that factor. Yeah, when Chuck Amato was there, Florida State and Clemson weren't doing what they're doing now. Um, at least for part of his tenure, you didn't even have Miami and Virginia Tech in the conference yet. A lot of these uh, North Carolina kids now go to the, I mean, they end up in the SEC. Todd Gurley was from uh, Tarboro. Uh, I think Keith Marshall's from there, too. Um, if you know Bryce Love at Stanford's from there. Uh, the kids get they, they leave the state. So um, it's not just NC State competing with UNC and Duke. It's competing with the SEC so, and Clemson. So um, it's a tough deal. Um, by, the, by the way, when Todd Gurley was in high school, as good as he was, was not even considered the top-rated player in the state of North Carolina. And that would be? Uh, two guys who went to Florida. This is my reference for DJ Humphrey and Jonathan Ballard. And they were pretty good, too. They were pretty good. Carlos Watkins, who had a really good c- career at Clemson, he is from there. I mean, there's there's a lot of guys who come who come from that state. Alex McAllister went to Florida. You know, he was a guy who was a really freaky athlete. He was from there. DJ Reader, who was at Clemson and, you know, had his moments. He's all from the same class. I mean, that's that's some really good talent right there. Keith Marshall was from Raleigh. So so that one great year where they were at Gershel, uh, Georgia was starting a pair of uh, North Carolina natives in the backfield together. Okay. By the way, you mentioned uh, Stanford. Uh, Peter Callumby, also a North Carolina guy. Probably the best pass rusher on this year's team. Yeah. Uh, Rich. From Columbus, Ohio. Stuart, not Stu, and Bruce. I appreciate that. Do you find the term group of five to be unwieldy? Can we please sim- simplify to something like <laughs> little five? If you could rename group of five, what would be your suggestion? Little five would be quite insulting. 
Yeah, I think little five is quite insulting as well. Okay, uh, I've got one. You ready? I don't like group of five either, by the way. I think he's right. Yeah, group of five actually, I'm surprised it caught on. It was kind of the working title when they were developing the college football playoff. That was just the way they would refer. We're not very good at names in college. No. No, it was a work kind of like New Year's Six. Like that just caught on. That wasn't an official thing. Group of five was, you know, literally like we're gonna be more inclusive of the of this group of five. That was so anyway, I have here's mine. Think give you a second to think of yours. So we refer pretty much unanimously to the ACC, et cetera, as the power five. Well, the other ones are the powerless five. Ah, very good. Yeah. I don't like it either. I think they wouldn't. I think <laughs> I don't think would... they would like it, but it's true. Yeah, not bad. Okay, you. Uh, I don't. I would say I'm almost as bad at names as you. So, um, I would just like to state for the record that I have heard since the last podcast from multiple people who say that um, immediate recovery is a great column name. So I don't know what you were thinking. I don't know. Rob Stone was on my side. I saw him yesterday, and he was like, Phew. glad Stu's not in the commercial business. Uh, okay, next question. Brad Newman. Bruce and Stewart, with the NCAA's somewhat political decision to pull championships from the state of North Carolina due to HB2, do you think this pu- this puts them in an awkward position down the road when there is a mid-major basketball talent, born a male, who wants to live his life and play sports as a female. They basically have to allow it now that they're all in on the side of inclusiveness, don't they? You just know that day is coming soon. Do you think this, this counts as us wading into, because we said we would never wade into politics. Does this count as that? Uh, I don't know what this counts as. There's a lot of stuff going on. and So I looked up the policy um, because I got... Uh, after the ACC pulled the championship and I wrote about it and I got a lot of things like this and, you know, would they, you know, what are they going to do if uh, somebody wants to dress in the locker room? The NCAA policy actually is inclusive of transgender. Trans, there's, um, pe- uh, people are absolutely allowed to play for the uh, team of, w- of the gender with which they identify with one exception and that is if you're undergoing hormonal treatment, then there's some conditions that I'm going to read because I don't want to botch it. A trans male who, a student athlete who's received a medical exception for treatment with testosterone for diagnosed gender identity disorder or gender dysphobia or transsexualism uh, may compete on a men's team but is no longer eligible to compete on a women's team without changing that team status to a mixed team. Um, a trans female student athlete being treated with testosterone suppression medication for gender identity disorder or gender dysphoria and or transsexualism da, 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 may not compete on a women's team without changing it to a mixed team status until completing one calendar year of testosterone suppression treatment. So that was very complicated. So basically, uh, trans female basically for all intents and purposes has to wait a year if they're undergoing the Testosterone treatment, trans male, is basically eligible immediately. So I thought people should know that. Okay. Anything more? Not unless you want to weigh in. No. I mean, I'll be honest. When I started reading this question, it was like, you know that this day is coming soon. Um, It's already come. Yeah. I mean, it's honestly not something I, I give much thought to. 
Um, I don't know. Well, I, don't know if I, have, I really don't have much to add on this subject. Okay, well, just for the record, you've punted on that one. You've punted on the group of five name. So I'm going to make you answer this next one from John okay. Malen- Malen- John Malanga. Dan Wolken of the USA Today Football 4 podcast was talking to Jason McIntyre of The Big Lead and FS1. And Jason said the following about national college football media, and Dan agreed. One, it is too chummy and clubby. And two, as a result, a groupthink mentality develops that inhibits the depth of reporting. Do you agree or disagree? Dan Wolken said it is too chummy and clubby. Well, Jason McIntyre said it, and Dan Wolken agreed. According to this reader, I have not listened to it. Okay, well, let's see if I can, I, I can remedy this. You know what? I think Dan Wolken's a bitter dude. <laughs> so, so how about that for not being too chummy? Jeez, uh, um, ouch. No, Podcast I like, rivalry. I like Dan. I honestly do like Dan. I think he's a very smart guy. Um, uh, Are we too now, chummy and clubby? Answer the question. As as a media blocker, I had to, I had how to we answer a transgender question. What's that? I had to spell out the NCAA transgender policy. You you can tell us if we're too chummy and clubby. I think we are chummy, and I wouldn't call us clubby. I don't know what the you know. I um, I think we are chummy as a group. I would say this as just um, you know, as it relates to I've been around other you know sport. Groups, you know, I don't think the NFL media, you know, there's more rivals, rivalries and rifts and people who don't like people um, as a group. And I think in college football media, like I, I couldn't say this a year ago and I think you'll know who I'm referencing, but I can say it now. I can't think of, you know, if, if we're at a big game or a national title game, I can't think that there's, you know, t- let's say there's 20 national media members. I can't think of a situation where it was like, hey, to make sure we don't invite so-and-so because these two people hate each other. Yeah, I don't, that never happens. No. Know. Now, there was a case where that happened, but that has been no longer. Um, now, does that lead to groupthink? I don't really think so. Yeah, I, I, I don't deny that there is some group th- that there is groupthink. I don't think it's because of that. If What's anything, the groupthink part, though? Groupthink being, and maybe you notice it more on Twitter, everybody jumps on the same bandwagon at the same time, right? So how did Washington become a unanimous? I don't think it has anything to do with, like you and I are the only ones I know. You're the only other person I've talked to about Washington and Louisville going into the season, short of other people listening to our podcast. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say. I'm going to play devil's advocate here because I I will give my answer in a second. But does it start with... You and I, you know, I do an early top 25 right after the championship game. I have Washington fairway high. We talk about it on the podcast. Some of our colleagues listen to that, read that. They start thinking about Washington, and it spreads from there. Maybe. But in general, you know, I was at the Oklahoma-Ohio State game. I hung out with uh, beforehand with uh, Pete Thamel, uh, Dennis Dodd, David Ubbin, George Schroeder. Sure, we talk about college football. But if anything, it helps kind of – expand my horizons not narrow it you know you you think of you you hear other people's stories and experiences and maybe they've talked to some coaches that you haven't or vice versa it is not like we gather at the the secret table in the back and go okay who are we going to rank number three this week and i i also think that there's a part i i think you know and i say this i do genuinely like wolk and 
Um, but I think there, you know, I've seen some of his tweets where I think he's critical of, you know, media. I remember there was, there was something that happened at SEC media days and I think it had to do with Cam Robinson and he was not, not SEC media days. It was SEC meetings. He was like, I can't believe this didn't get asked or anything like that. And one of the Alabama beat writers like, cause we asked him last week or, or something like that. And I, I do think that there is a level of skepticism and maybe this is what, what, uh, John, our, 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 uh, listener is bringing up is, well, we all group think like certain coaches and we all dislike, you know, the same people or whatever, which I don't necessarily think is the case because I give you, for instance, you know, our colleague, Pete Thamel, we can call him a colleague, you know, I think he's more plugged into Ohio State than anybody in the national media. I don't think that's a stretch, but there's other people we know who have been critical of that. So I think that there's not critical of Pete, but, you know, have been critical of Urban Meyer. And as you know, and, there was a, there's a very large Steve Spurrier adulation club, and I have been uh, yeah. taking those to task somewhat as well. End of day, no, it is not as cutthroat and competitive as the NFL beat, but I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I'm all big, uh, why don't we all get along uh, person. And finally, a little update from last week. You may remember that Quincy asked us if Charlie Strong was one of the elite coaches and are they going to win national championships already? And da, da, da. he wrote in to say, guys, I retract my question about Charlie Strong from last week's podcast. Thank you, Quincy. Probably a good a idea. Yeah. All right. If you have emails for next week's podcast, please send them to the audible pod at gmail.com. And as always, if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We'll see you next time.